Good evening, welcome to another episode of Bobcast. With you as always is Bob, live in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Easter is upon us. Ugh, Easter. How much do I hate ham? Let's talk about ham, ladies and gentlemen, okay? I eat meat, okay? I'm going to put it out there. I'm not a vegetarian, even though I do like some vegetarian foods. But ham, it's just this weird texture. It's like eating the back of somebody's hand. It's like eating flesh. It's disgusting. And it also signifies, I guess, growing up for me, the return of Jesus, the body coming back from the dead. And the ham always reminded me of just some, you know, just piece of sacrifice of my life. So eating the ham is like being like, oh, this is, we're eating this ham because of the sins that were bestowed upon us from our original sin. That's right, if you're a Roman Catholic Christian out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The guilt that arises as a kid, thinking, oh, I have to go to confession, I have to go and do this. You may be saying to yourself right now, ooh, it sounds like Bob's a little upset about this. I'm not upset about this because I am over it. But I do believe that a human being is able to see God only within themselves. You have to be able to step back and look at the whole picture. So we won't go any further because I don't want to upset my mother and father because I love them very much. But if you listen to this and you're eating leftover Easter ham, remember, it is the sacrifice. Yeah, speaking of spirituality, did anybody out there in the Bobcast land watch the documentary on HBO, Going Clear? My God. 2005, I used to live with Downtown Harvest out in Los Angeles. And I remember the first time coming across the Scientology building. It's large, blue, menacing look to it and that strange golden cross. And the nice-looking people who seemed to really care about me and asked me if I wanted a stress test. I never really knew what was going on inside there, but I was always just, you know, spellbinded by what it looks like in person. I mean, you've seen it in the documentary now. It just looks like a super dope church. Growing up a Catholic Christian, you know, I remember in 2005, I was like, maybe that place isn't so bad. And I was this close from pursuing, I guess, a little bit more information with the church. But apparently this documentary is blowing, you know, the doors off the church's founders, people like Tom Cruise, calling them crazy, calling them brainwashed, calling them a cult. But I mean, I, I just, uh, I, I'm fascinated by it. I, stu- I studied uh, religions in college. Um, being able to understand what everyone's feeling at once is the true way to find God. Hashtag chat game strong. But, uh, you know, the way I see it is, you know, these people, the Scientologists, L.R. Ron Hubbard. I mean, L.R.H. Man, that guy was crazy. I'm going to watch The Master this weekend because apparently that movie is about, or it pays, you know, like, I guess homage to L.R.H. But um, L.R.H. was a science fiction novelist if you've been under a rock for the last century. He wrote um, a lot of Pulp Fiction, stuff like that. And basically, you know, he came up with the idea, you know, of beating the government, paying taxes. Some could look at that as being a true patriot because paying taxes, or excuse me, no taxation with no representation is just all wrong here in the world. But LRH, he, he wanted to just not pay the tax man any money. So he decided to create a religion, a religion called Scientology, which the documentary, I've seen it twice now, I'm telling you, it still sticks with you. It's this weird, weird feeling that comes upon you when you watch it. Because 
I made the correlation too. I mean, like, okay, so some people have said to me, you know, it's terrible what those Scientologists have done to like the children, like you know, forced work, labor, sleeping on soggy mattresses on the roof. And uh, I couldn't help but think about you know other religions and even the religion that I practiced growing up. I mean, the last three years, four years, we've had Catholic priests under fire for you know molesting young teenage boys, young children in the church. So, I mean, there's just always going to be corruption in religion. There's never going to be one person who's right, and there's never going to be one person who's wrong. Because religion is the only thing in the world that we're uncertain of. I mean, most things, yeah, we're certain. I know it's going to rain. I know my wife's going to come home in an hour and maybe 20 minutes. I know that I'm always going to be wearing black socks. Stuff like this, you know, we know. But we don't know about religion. We don't know where we're going. The only thing we can do is feel. So I do feel something for these Scientologist people because I feel as if, you know, they may be crazy and shit like that, but they have the right to believe in whatever they want. And basically, we're we're mad at them for that. And Xenu, the cosmic galactic prince who dropped hydrogen bombs using a DC-8 on planet Earth some trillions of years ago and releasing thetans into our system and then becoming the source of all of our depressions, our highs, our lows, our loves, our woes. You have it like that, you know, Miscavige, this guy who took over for LRH when he died in the, I don't know, sometime in the 80s. God, he's, he's just fascinating. He's, he, it's like he wants to be Tom Cruise and he, he has Tom Cruise being his friend over here and Tom Cruise, I mean, I, I never realized it, but I mean, at the height of his, Scientology, he got a medal or something for Scientology. It was right when he released the film War of the Worlds, which I really did enjoy. The first 20 minutes is fantastic. Um, that movie is kind of like a... It, it kind of plays off like what LRH was talking about with, you know, the cosmic prince coming to a planet and dropping off things. Like, these aliens come, drop off, they need our blood to use this. The Thetans are using our blood to manipulate our uh, body, mind, soul. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. So yeah, if you haven't watched Going Clear, it's on HBO On Demand. Definitely check it out. Uh, Tom Cruise, you know, check out some YouTube videos of him talking to, I guess, the Australian interview ones. Really, really interesting, man, because this Australian uh, guy <laughs> starts asking questions that Tom just doesn't like. And you've seen the one with Matt Lauer where he flips out and calls him glib, which is an excellent word for words with friends. Even though, I got to take a real quick break here. I quit Words with Friends. I had too many games going on at once. If you're listening and wondering where I've been, I'm really sorry about that. It's just too much. Instead, I'm playing Trivia Crack. That's right. Find me on Facebook, Bob Cahill. I got a couple different games going on right now. Some get really heated. It's a lot more fun. Words with Friends takes too long. Get on Trivia Crack. Back to Tom Cruise. Glib. Good word if you're playing Words with Friends. War of the Worlds, check it out. Tom, you know, we love you no matter what you do. You may be batshit crazy, but I'm going to still watch your movies. So, yeah, the other thing going on with the pop culture dial is that this will be the 21st anniversary of Kurt Cobain's death. It's also going to be the year that we see the montage of Heck on HBO, I think May 4th, which is a documentary, documentary film about Kurt Cobain's life. I just read recently that there will be some theaters releasing it, which will make it eligible for the Oscar next year. So I'd like to publicly, you know, put that out there. Get the vote going. Uh, I've seen the trailer online. It's great. Uh, Sunday, April 5th, is supposedly when Kurt Cobain passed away in his home. So uh, let's take a listen to one of his songs. Hey, 
Alright, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Bobcast. With you as always is Bob, live in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board. Let's flash back to the year 2001 real quick, ladies and gentlemen. The internet's just getting started. The bombs never dropped. The Y2K, the year didn't go back to zero. My friend Drew Reed and I, we stumbled into this bar up in Ardmore, Pennsylvania called The Point. The band on stage is called Town Hall. I mean, they had amazing horns, jazzed up funk guitar, thumping bass, backbeat beauty. Town Hall easily became one of my favorite bands. They went on to do many great things in the city of Philadelphia, but then, like all bands, they broke up. George, the lead singer, started his solo career. His new album, Something Better, is available now on iTunes and Amazon. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, George Stanford. Hello, impressive pronunciation of my name there, Bob. How are you? I am from the city of Philadelphia. We like we have strange accents over here, you know? Uh, I certainly do. George, we'd like to get right into it here at the Bobcast, and this is a question we ask all of our musical guests. Growing up as a kid in the 90s, uh, who were your idols? Like, who were you looking up to? Who do you see yourself as? In the 90s, I, well, I wasn't, I wasn't as much, well, that's not true. I was going to say I wasn't into pop music, but I was soaking it all in. Um, we always had a lot of, like, blues and... Are in rhythm and blues and stuff going to my house, so I listened to a lot of that. But I was also in the '90s. I was really into like the kind of neo jazz funk kind of thing going on, like the Us Three. Um, you know, I was you know, growing up as a horn player. I was always into kind of the funkier stuff where horns would be featured. So uh, I remember Us Three being a big thing for me in the in the uh, mid '90s. I gravitate always towards anything, you know, with this really strong groove, uh, you know, rhythm-based kind of stuff. So, but I was into all the pop too, and a lot of the stuff now, I'm into a lot more. A lot of the stuff from the '90s, the Nirvanas, and some of the other rock stuff. So, um, what I'm trying to think of at the time, at the time, I wasn't listening to a ton of pop music, honestly. Us three, it's still, I mean, still though, the musical taste, the stylings of the 90s, I mean, it is, it's all coming back too. It's making like a, a comeback. So you said that you were a horn player, right? So was your first musical yeah. instrument the horn or was it guitar? Yes, my, my first instrument uh, was the trombone. And then, uh, you know, and then from there I started playing bass guitar and learned how to play guitar and develop my, my songwriting from there. Can you take us back to the time, like the first gig you ever had, the first time George ever played in front of an audience? Well, like my own songs, it was probably when I was 16 years old or something like that. Take us back to that gig. um, Let's see. I think it was some function at my high school. I'd written my first song and I performed. That was the first time I performed uh, one of my original songs. But I was somewhat comfortable up there because I'd been performing and playing, you know, playing around on my horn a lot before then. Um, I don't even know when the first time I kind of had a born born a performer a little bit, so I was always hamming it up, even if I wasn't technically on stage for my family and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you go to school uh, for music as well, and I do believe you you went to the University of Arts, right? Or correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I, uh, no, I went to University of Arts for about a year and a half mm-hmm. after high school. Uh, studying the trom- uh, trombone, playing the horn. And, uh, it was it was a interesting, it was a cool experience. I met uh, I met all of the town hall guys there. It was, it was great. So you guys, were you all from the same place? I mean, how did, how did town hall form? What was like the conversation that was had? 
I, I hit it off really well with, uh, Nate Skiles was one of my first buddies. And then we all hit it off with Kevin. Kevin and Tim were kind of like a rhythm section unit, you could say, drum and bass. Mm-hmm. And Mark was good friends with Kevin. So just after, you know, a series of hang sessions and jam sessions, uh, this, this thing came about. And it, it became uh, like a sensation in the city. Everybody was talking about the band. I mean, it quickly, it, uh, it seemed like it happened overnight, right? Was it in the summer of, I guess, 2000 the band formed? Sounds about right. It's been right. a long time. So. But yeah, about that time. Yeah. So, I mean, about like, I guess you think that the, the band Town Hall, you think the music was influenced by, you know, the the fusion funk kind of rhythms that you're listening to as a kid? And, like, you know, I mean, I, I have to say. Well, that, had a lot, that had a lot to do with it. Um, I mean, we were all the, the groove mindset. But, uh, but that's also when, you know, the art of songwriting really hit me like a bolt of lightning. Like that's what I want to do and I wanted to pursue. So, you know, and, and I'm also, I've always loved, I've always loved pop music, pop songs and mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to, how to write three, three and a half minutes of a, you know, a concise, uh, well-rounded thought that has all the attributes of a good song, great melody and chords and rhythm. So that's when the songwriting bug really hit me too. So, uh, I was, had a lot of like Paul Simon influence, and I've always been a big Tom Petty guy. Mm-hmm. But that's uh, Tom Petty is a good example, maybe of like the music from the '90s that I was really into. Um, uh, I was listening to a lot of Tom Petty back in the '90s. Yeah, he's very talented. I mean, looking back at your uh, your career in Town Hall and retrospective, what would you say uh, your fondest memory of the band was? My fondest memory, well. We did have a great, you know, local Philly fan base, and uh, it was always exciting playing for them. Um, I think more than anything else, it was really just the camaraderie of uh, of being with those guys, and it was such an interesting. I mean, the, re- the reason that people responded uh, so much to Town Hall was the chemistry um, that we had as a band. I mean, that's what makes any band really, you know, sexy to its audience. It's just the uh, the, just the chemistry that you know any unique group of people can have and can't be replicated, and and that's what uh, I enjoyed so much—not just on stage, but off that personality, the way they jived. Uh, it's, I, I still consider uh, all of them actually to be some of my best friends. So uh, that's great. That, that's what I, that's what I like the most about it. Yeah, the album uh, Live at the Point. I I picked up about. I had it when I was like, what, 22, and then I lost it. I think about like maybe two years ago, I picked it back up on Amazon. It came back in the mail. It was great seeing it. The double CD live at the at the point, which is uh, closed now. I think it's like some sporting authority or something like that. But So this double album, it's uh, it's killer. I mean, it really, it, it. I think the town hall, what town hall did really well was, you know, it had chemistry, but it also like took on the personality of the city. The songs could be heavy. The songs could be soft. Yeah, it was a dynamic, uh, it was a dynamic group for sure. You know, we we definitely drew from all the styles. I mean, really, to, for the in terms of the groove thing, I mean, Tim and uh, was you know he's like when we first picked up, he was playing bass, upright bass in like Cuban bands around the city. He just has such an incredible sense of time and feel and rhythm. I learned so much from him and Nate Styles as well. I mean, everybody, they're just great musicians and 
but Sarah, what I love about music is just drawing from a lot of different influences, you know, like uh, why corner your, you know, box yourself in. There's so much great music out there, so many varieties. So uh, it was cool because everybody was on that same tip of just drawing inspiration from anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, definitely. Let's take a listen to a track from that uh, live CD. This is Kutsu Killer.
Thank you, thank you. All right, back here with George Stanford. George, you moved out to L.A., I guess, what, like six, seven years ago or something like that? Yes, something like that, yes. Um, what do you see as the, you know, how is it different? I mean, what can you tell us over here on the East Coast? It's a very different place. It's a great city. It's kind of, uh, uh, I think of it as kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. I mean, there's, it's kind of like, I guess, New York in a way in that there's uh, there's everything here. And uh, it's it's a different vibe, too. Uh, anybody who's ever spent time here can uh, can vouch for that. It's kind of it's kind of hard to explain, really. Just the light and the style, the lifestyle, everything out here. It's just slightly different, and I, I like it a lot, actually. Yeah, I liked it too. Uh, we lived out there, I think, two thousand five. We lived uh, Silver Lake, like Los Feliz kind of area, and it definitely yeah, cool. has such a it, it like overtakes you. It's a, a fantastic place if you've never been out to Los Angeles. If you're an artist of any yeah. kind, it's it's a it's a must go. Especially if you're young, listening to this, you got to make your way out there because it is a it's just its own playground. There's so many different things to do, so many aspects. So you move yeah, out absolutely. to Los Angeles and um, you start dropping albums. Your first album, The Big Drop. What year was that? That was uh, late 2008, I believe. 2008. So that album comes yeah, out. 2008. You start playing out in Los Angeles, start doing tours. Uh, you open up for some big acts on the road, uh, taking the the solo music and I guess exploring. I guess to me, it kind of. I mean, you say Tom Petty at the beginning of the show. I do feel as if the yeah. songs that I've listened to recently that you're putting out, they definitely have a sense of you know storytelling elements to it. If I'm not wrong, and the oh. the lyrics are becoming more like stories. So I mean, what can you tell us? I mean, as a songwriter in your solo career, um, you know, like, how do you approach this song style now? Well, uh, I think I'm always just trying to, uh, trying to get to the, I think I'm just always trying to get to the heart of the matter now more than ever and kind of chop off all the unneeded stuff and just really try to, um, get every song down to its essence. So I'm really, uh, I feel like I'm writing, in a more simple, pure way almost now that uh, I have some new songs I'm actually recording now that uh, I'm super excited about. I feel like it's probably my, my best batch of songs yet. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's a constant process. I don't know. You're just trying to chip, out a, chip away at it and always be a better songwriter. So then you put out, I guess, uh, second album, Los Palmas, uh, Grace of Jake, and then... Oh, Los Lost Thomas, I put out a couple EPs, Lost Thomas EP, the Rollaway EP, and then uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of on a tip of just kind of putting out a single here here and there now. Like uh, my next couple of releases will just be single releases. Yes, that seems to be the way to go in today's world. I mean, with the I guess the introduction this week of title. What do you think about title uh, artists selling their music for artists? Hey, I'm all for it. Right? I mean, you I'm think it's going to work man. for the artists? You think they can get paid more than iTunes and SoundCloud? Uh, I think they're. Uh, I think it's going to be a tough sell, but um, you know, it's not impossible. People want people want quality, and people want to support artists. Um, I think when anybody gets music uh, online, be it streaming, if they're paying or not, um, there's a division there where people don't necessarily associate their support. Um, you know, supporting artists which is different than at a show. I mean, I find people, when you're there live, really connecting with people, they people 
you know, open their wallet. They want original music. So. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I hope it works out for artists around the world. Uh, you got a residency right now in uh, Los Angeles, right? You play every Tuesday night. Can you tell uh, the Bobcast listeners about that? Yeah, I play Tuesday nights. Uh, it's kind of an ongoing uh, thing. Uh, very fun, though. It's a great thing. It's kind of a it's kind of an un-Hollywood vibe a little bit, right in the heart of Hollywood, which I like. It's good hang. Chill people coming out to support original music. Um, there's some other good acts on, usually on the bill every Tuesday. Yeah. It's just a little bit of a playground, uh, you know. We've been expanding, stretching out on different tunes and just exploring a little bit. And uh, it's just a really fun weekly uh, weekly way to, to rock out. Now, you uh, uh, playing with other musicians out there? Yeah, absolutely. I got a, I play with a host of uh, pretty awesome musicians out here. So I'll, I'll do the uh, solo show occasionally as well, yes. which is really fun. But, uh, yeah, I have some great musicians I play with out here. Any names you want to drop here on the Bobcast? Um, I'm not sure that uh, your listeners might know them. They're local uh, L.A. guys, but I do a lot of playing with, uh, like, Matty Alger plays the drum, uh, John Tom- Jonathan Thomas on the keyboards, who does a lot of playing with some, some pretty cool people. So, uh, I definitely, I mean, the, the, the talent pool out here is uh, is pretty amazing. and I've, I've been lucky enough to hook up with some really talented cats along the way, so. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, recently, you did a gig that uh, I'd like to... Uh, just tell me what it was like playing with the train sail across the Sun Cruise. What was that, was that great exactly? Experience. That was a great experience, man. Um, the band, the rock band Train, they do... Uh, they've been doing... I think this was their third one. They do a cruise that goes out of Miami to the Florida Keys and the Bahamas. And uh, basically, I don't know, for anybody who's not familiar with these cruises, there's like... Uh, on this particular cruise, train put it together to the headliner, and then they kind of put uh, a roster of acts around them to play over the four days you're on. This one was four days. The four days we were on the boat, so I played like three shows over four days, and there were some other like uh, the Whalers were playing as well, which was awesome. Uh, Andy Grammer and some other really other talented acts. Uh, so it was, it was a great experience. That's fantastic. You know, George, I, I really appreciate you making the time uh, to ring us up here on the Bobcast. I'd like to thank you for calling in. Uh, George, what's your Absolutely, website? Man. What's your website that the Bobcast listeners can check out all your albums at? Uh, my music and everything, uh, you can find me at georgestanford.com. And uh, I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate your interest in my music. And uh, yeah, it means a lot to me. Thank you. No doubt. Let's take a listen to uh, an appropriate song over here on the East Coast because it's finally getting warm out over here. This is Permanent Summertime by George Stanford.
Something underneath the shade 